Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's January 16th, 1967, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. It had a budget of just $1 million, a lead actor wearing a toupee, and the baddie in the first draft of the script was a monkey. But today in history, in 1962, in Jamaica, the first of 58 days filming began on the movie that introduced the world to Bond. James Bond. Yeah, the filming commenced at Palisados Airport in Kingston with additional scenes then being shot at Port Royal in St Andrew. And when a few days later, the main unit relocated to a place called Laughing Water to shoot the famous scene where Ursula Andreas's Honey Rider emerges from the sea, they found themselves literally just down the beach from Ian Fleming's Goldeneye estate in Orica Bessa. And so Ian Fleming popped down to visit the set with his friends and neighbours, including the playwright right Noel Coward and poet Stephen Spender (laughs) to give some advice to Sean Connery on the best way to play Bond. And Ian Fleming may not have actually been the best person to give Sean Connery advice because the Bond who appears in Doctor No is very different from the Bond who appears in Fleming's novels in a way that really works to its advantage. The film really, although it does contain some of the more unsavoury elements of Fleming's Bond, which would themselves get worn away over time, Bond is pretty misogynistic even for his day in this movie. Uh, But in the books, he had a really cold, cruel streak. You know, he was very detached kind of character which worked on the page but Connery brought that down to earth you know humorous side Fleming's public schoolboy bond was really a pretty cold fish and not the kind of character who's very charismatic on screen but the way that Connery plays him clearly signals that this is a romp and that in turn makes those kind of dated moments easier to you know look at with an eye roll rather than like ooh yikes you know and that light touch is emphasized in other ways Miss Moneypenny didn't really have much of a role uh, in the original novels but the movies and Introduce that flirty repartee that would become you know, obviously part of the Bond franchise, which is all the more interesting given that certainly at the start it wasn't really being perceived as a franchise. You know, this was the pre-action franchise era. There was no Fast and Furious, no Mission Impossible. There were some kind of movie franchises, maybe like the Carry On movies or even earlier the Bob Hope and Bing Crosby Road to Blah films. But they were, yeah, they were all comedies. So they obviously weren't looking at this as something that would necessarily lead to a series of sequels. They picked Doctor No because it was judged to be the simplest and cheapest story to film. Yeah, so despite this being the first James Bond movie, this isn't the first James Bond novel, which is Casino Royale, uh, which, as we explained in our episode about that chaotic first Casino Royale movie, Ian Fleming had already sold the rights to to somebody else. So they had to start the series with not the first, so they chose the sixth, which again is kind of fortunate because at this point, Fleming's style has already evolved itself in the books into something camper and a bit more flamboyant and OTT. Hence, he's cavorting around in Jamaica with Noel Coward when they're filming it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, again, I think that was a wise choice for establishing what this could go on to be, even though, as you say, the fact that it isn't a franchise sort of liberates it with the creative freedom from the very things that James Bond movies are slightly bogged down with now. You know, 
they get to have Ursula Andress emerging from the ocean. Now, if you do that, it's a tribute to that. You know, they get to have gadgets, but they don't have the scene where Bond plays with all the gadgets. You know, Mm. at the same time, they laid down crucial groundwork here. The opening sequence, the costume design, the look and feel, particularly of the baddies layer and the way that Bond's opponents would be introduced. Yeah, it's so funny that that complex progress of James Bond from the printed page to the big screen kind of feeds into not only this movie, but the whole series that we ended up with. Because, you know, after Ian Fleming sold off those initial uh, rights to Casino Royale, he then started writing uh, screenplays based on what was his then current novel, which was Moonraker. He sort of got that optioned initially, but it never got made. And then in 1956, uh, Fleming Fleming produced this 28-page script called James Gunn, Secret Agent, which was done for this uh, producer from New York called Henry Morgenthau III, who had entered into a deal with the Jamaican government, hoping to turn the island into this major film production centre. And so, you know, given Fleming was already living out there and he'd kind of fallen in love with Jamaica, he then, like, started to work on this script. That movie then never made it, but the plot was pretty much the basis for Doctor No. And so Ian Fleming then wrote the book Dr. No and then eventually reworked that script and that became this film. So there's this weird complex feedback loop going on. You've got a smile in your voice about the idea of Jamaica being a major centre of film production as if somehow Auckland or Watford make more natural sense. <laughs> well, true. <laughs> I mean, I think it would have been nice yeah. <laughs> if everyone went and made movies in Jamaica. <laughs> and Dr. No was co-produced by Albert Cubby Broccoli, who Bond fans will recognise that name immediately, who was a US film producer and he had become interested in adapting the Fleming novels after moving to London and starting to read them. And Harry Saltzman, who was a Canadian producer who had recently purchased the rights to the novels. So like Broccoli Saltzman had been lured to the UK by generous government film subsidies and he'd recently had some critical successes but they were with very non-Bond movies they were kitchen sink dramas uh, Look Back in Anger, Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, you know, it doesn't scream, we're romping on a beach, Ursula Andress is emerging in <laughs> a wet Ursula Andress emerges from the kitchen sink <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And Broccoli, on the other hand, he had been in the movie biz a long time, but he'd mostly been involved with B-list action movies. So you can see that kind of, you know, together they had something. So they agreed to team up and found Eon Productions, which still makes the Bond movies. And it's run now by Broccoli's daughter, Barbara, and his stepson, Michael G. Wilson. Broccoli was the one who suggested Connery. He had noticed him, again, it's a non-Bond place, in the whimsical Disney live-action movie of 1959, Darby O'Gill and the Little People. And he thought he was rugged and hot, which is interesting when you look at the film. It's definitely not trying to position anybody as rugged and hot. (laughs) Initially, to find their James Bond, the producers ran a competition in newspapers and whittled this group of thousands of applicants down to just six contenders. Initially, Broccoli had his heart set on Cary Grant to do the role of James Bond. Others under consideration included Roger Moore and Max von Sydow. Roger Moore. It would never have worked. I know, <laughs> madness. <laughs> but then they, yeah, then uh, Connery turned up. He was actually recommended to uh, the producers at a dinner party. And even though he didn't have any sort of major experience behind him, and he had, he certainly wasn't a big name at that time, what they liked, according to Saltzman, was the way he moved. Saltzman told the BBC in 1967, there's only one other actor who moves as well as he does, and that's Albert Finney. They move like cats, and for a big man to be light on his feet is most unusual. So they were like, yep, even though Fleming doesn't like him at all, Connery's our man. 
Yeah, the man who was chosen by the national newspaper competition was Peter Anthony, who was a model with no acting mm. experience at all. So who'd have thought that actually you might be better off getting an actual actor to do a screen test before you choose <laughs> who's going to be the star of your big movie? Right. Uh, I mean, it's interesting regarding Connery and his experience or lack of, because, as we've said, he had credits to his name. He'd been in a lot of TV as well, which obviously was looked down on at the time, but was nonetheless acting experience. He just wasn't... Well, he actually, he was a romantic lead in Another Time, Another Place. So he had once been a romantic lead, but he wasn't an established romantic lead. What's interesting is once the PR for the movie kicked in and they realised, basically, they want this film to appeal to red-blooded working-class men to come and watch it in the cinema, and, and this is the one movie they're going to watch that week, they started marketing him as a former lorry driver who'd been plucked from obscurity, who had very little experience. And that kind of upward social mobility of him basically being Scottish was a good news story, wasn't it? Like, we're going to take this Scottish lorry driver and turn him into a romantic lead. But nonetheless, there was still some nervousness on set that Connery would be able to pull off the casinos and Mm. the posh restaurants and the tailoring and all that. So the director, Terence Young, who was like absolutely core Savile Row swinging 60s kind of fella, took Connery around London with him for months before shooting began so (laughs) that he had what he saw as more of a familiarity with the kind of worlds that James Bond would have inhabited had he existed. Yeah, and Terence Young was also instrumental in encouraging that vein of humour that runs through the film. And he saw that a a sort of air of slight self-mockery, a little bit of camp, would be a way to get more sex and violence past the censors rather than playing it straight. And that's kind of what alienated Fleming a little bit about it too. You know, the screenplay really exercised a lot of the Fleming Bond's idiosyncrasies, you know, including his endless paragraphs describing Bond's pedantic opinions on food and drink. That's a really weirdly core part of the novels that never quite <laughs> makes it to the screen. I mean, Fleming later called the movie dreadful. Presumably Bond didn't spend whole scenes wanging on about his favourite way to eat breakfast. But he was eventually won over by Connery. And that's supposedly why he introduced Scottish ancestry for the Bond characters. It goes to show that that symbiotic relationship between the novels, which obviously still being written at the time, and the portrayal on screen was already starting to form. And part of that is because Connery, like you say, he didn't seem necessarily like the most natural fit in Casino's glamorous backdrops, but that was part of what people liked about him. You know, I think the public schoolboy bond of the Fleming novels definitely wouldn't have spoken to audiences in the same way. He just had a knack for getting Bond right. Even the thing that you began this whole episode with, Ollie, Bond, James Bond, that was a piece of improv by Connery. You know, he came up with that. The line as it was written was, hi, I'm James Bond. And he came up with this absolutely (laughs) iconic thing. Would you like to hear my view on a ham sandwich? Yeah, (laughs) right. Tomorrow. I've worked hard for 20 years to keep the family farm going. I don't want my son marrying some girl from Dublin. Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors.